Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. Treason, patriotism, or cowardice? All of those words are being used to describe this leakiest of White Houses, and in particular, the bombshell New York Times op-ed by an anonymous senior White House official that dropped this week. Coupled with the new Bob Woodward book, Fear, that comes out this Thursday, Tuesday, sorry, which is full of unflattering and indeed concerning anecdotes from within the Trump administration, it's clear this White House is under siege. And the call is coming from inside the House. Trump, for his part, is taking it well. He demanded the New York Times turn the author over to the government at once. Just last night, CNN's Jim Acosta reported that Trump is obsessed with finding the op-ed author and that the hunt has narrowed down to, quote, a few individuals. Meanwhile, Chief of Staff John Kelly is counseling the president to move on. Here's the deal. Whistleblowers have a long and storied history in our democracy, playing a pivotal role in exposing corruption, honesty, dishonesty, fraud, incompetence, and all other kinds of corrosive systemic problems. We are better for the sunlight that whistleblowers have shown on injustices and abuses from the Vietnam War to Abu Ghraib to mass data collection. They enjoy a privileged status, which sometimes includes by necessity anonymity. Why? Well, it turns out the powerful don't always like being exposed. Other administrations have tried to crack down on whistleblowers and the press who aided them. Nixon, of course, tried to silence the New York Times and Washington Post for publishing the Pentagon Papers. The Obama administration invoked the Espionage Act to go after whistleblowers more than all previous administrations combined. But here's the problem. The author of this op-ed didn't blow any whistles. He or she didn't expose any specific crime or corruption, didn't say, I'm willing to go to jail to share these secrets with the public, didn't name names. He or she just sort of aired a list of grievances about how hard it is to work for the president and then assured us, don't worry, we're on top of it. Sorry, that doesn't score you any patriotism points from me. Either tell us what you know or resign. I want to bring in Brian Stelter, host of CNN's Reliable Sources. Um, Brian, I'm going to get to the New York Times op-ed and how all of that went down because you know the real story. But first, um, the Bob Woodward book. Uh, that as a story seems like it was so long ago, and yet the book hasn't even come out yet. We ain't heard anything yet. That's we haven't right. seen anything yet. Uh, this is expect? Woodward Weekend. You know, tomorrow he's going to be on TV for the first time. He's going right. to be on CBS talking about what he found in his reporting. Then, of course, Tuesday, we're going to see the book. We can all actually read it. You know, early copies have been circulating in D.C. and yeah. New York. They've even been circulating in other countries. Diplomats want to see what Woodward uncovered. And I think the big surprise is going to be how much Woodward has of uh, prime 
primary source material. Right. Notes from meetings, tape recordings. Uh, I don't know exactly what he has, but I know he has notes from staffers from their meetings in the West Wing. That's not Woodward in his own words. Those are the staffers describing Trump, and I think that's going to be important. Is that going to satisfy him, though? Because he's already the president accusing Woodward of lying. Um, you know, Bob Woodward has a pretty good reputation. He's done this to a number of administrations. Is the president going to have an argument, a convincing argument, when he tries to discredit Woodward? Because most of the information is from anonymous sources, you either trust those sources or you don't. Yeah. Uh, you and I have worked in, in big newsrooms. Yeah. Uh, I think we tend to trust those sources because we know editors are involved. There's a process for get granting mm -hmm. anonymity. This stuff doesn't get made up out of whole cloth. Mm -hmm. But President Trump is someone who makes up stories. So he <laughs> believes other people make up stories, too. That is his belief. That's his claim about Woodward. Uh, I think for most of Washington, I think for, for most of the country, hearing Trump call Woodward an, uh, an idiot it, eh, you know, it's gross. It doesn't make any sense. It's 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 uh, non-logical. Non it's yeah. nonsensical. But obviously, the president's been on this campaign of fake news for a year and a half, right. leading up to moments like this to discredit books like Woodward's. So, okay, let's go back and talk about that. Op-ed, start from the beginning. Um, how <laughs> did the Times handle this unusual pitch? Yeah, can you imagine this call? Jim no. Dow is this guy. He's the op-ed editor at the New York Times. Yeah. He hears from an intermediary, a friend or a guy he's known for a long time, that there is this senior official that wants to speak. And Dow basically says, okay, show me the op-ed. Let's read it. Yeah. Uh, and then let's vet who the person is. Let's make sure the person actually is who they say they are, right? Okay. So if I walked in, if I was a cabinet secretary and I had this op-ed, for example, they had to make sure I really was the secretary. Uh, so that process happened. Okay. Amazingly, Dow says he is surprised by how big a reaction there's been. Uh, huh. More than 12 million page views so far on the New York Times website. One of the biggest pieces of the year. So is that because that of what's inside or because it's an anonymous? and yeah, there's, there's the intrigue around I it. I think it does make it more intriguing. If this yeah. had been a... But it depends on who the person is, right? If this person <laughs> works at the White House, we don't know if they do or not. Mm -hmm. If this person's a household name and we find out who it is someday, then having that byline would have made it an even bigger deal. Yeah. If this person's an undersecretary that you and I have never heard of, yeah. then it wouldn't have been as big a deal if it was named. Um, you heard my view of this. I don't think what this person did was uh, patriotic, but I don't think it was treasonous. Um, what, what do, you, do you think that the, the New York Times was right to publish it and anonymously? Let me put it this way. If this landed on my desk, yeah. I would find a way to publish it too. Right. I think this was uh, providing more evidence more data points, more information to the public, yeah. and that's a valuable thing. Uh, but I would have begged the source to let us describe you a little bit more. With a, a little, little more, more detail. detail. Yeah. A little more than senior official. How <laughs> senior are you? Where do you work? Hopefully someday soon we'll find Maybe out. Maybe we'll know. I hope we do. Maybe we won't. Brian Stelter, thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate it. Make sure to tune in tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern for more of Brian on Reliable Sources. Stay there. We'll be right back. In the red file tonight, he's back. After avoiding the spotlight for the better part of the year, former President Obama is done being polite. He took the podium in California campaigning for seven Democratic congressional candidates. Take a listen. The biggest threat to our democracy, I said yesterday, is not, it, it, it's not one individual. It, it, it's not uh, one big super PAC billionaires. It's apathy. It's indifference. It's us not doing what we're supposed to do. That campaign stop follows a barnstorming speech he gave yesterday at the University of Illinois uh, that pulled no punches. So is this just what the Democrats needed? 
here to discuss is Basil Smeichel. Um, I'm so glad you're here to join me. Compare yesterday's speech to today's. I said yesterday was a roast. Today was more like a celebration. It was, and I think that's the kind of Obama that you'll see on this campaign trail. A, mi a mix of both, oh, actually. Okay. You know, he'll do it where appropriate. He'll go out there, charge up the troops, make sure people really do understand what's at stake. And at the same time, in, in other places, he'll talk about bringing us together, because I think that's what his, the attraction is for him. Among other things, it's, it's voters remembering, yeah, those were pretty good times. I may not have liked all of his policies, but he was a stabilizing force in our government, and people want to get back to that. Um, so in other news in the Democratic this was such a weird week for so many reasons. I heard a number of people being floated, uh, both privately to me and also in some news reports for 2020 on your side of the aisle. Uh, we need to talk about a couple of these. Number one, John Kerry. Wow. John yeah. Kerry yeah. is being credibly floated. Yeah. I've been told privately that he is considering a run. What wing of the party <laughs> was clamoring for more John Kerry? Who said more John? We need more John Kerry. We need more 74-year-old Boston Brahmin billionaire <laughs> globalist war hawk. Well, we are actually seeing a lot of folks in the party running against that, right? Right. So, that's what, so I'm, not, I'm not so sure. Look, I love John Kerry, but I think, you know, Democrats are going to make up their mind to some extent in the next year or so because we have to find somebody really within the next six to six to eight months. But we're going to try and determine whether or not we want somebody that's going to be Trump-like in that they can go head-to-head -head with him. Right. Or are we going to find the complete antithesis of, of Donald Trump? I think Trump. John Kerry is I don't, either I don't, one and of I don't, those. And I don't think he's either. <laughs> he's I think no he's going to be more of the same that a lot of young Democrats are running against right now. And look, one of the things that Obama is doing, even not being on the trail, Yeah is that he has created, I think, a new cohort of young activists and elected officials yes. presently. And what that does... You know to who me, has not? John Kerry. Well, that's, <laughs> you might be right about that. But that's, what I think, the Obama effect that I was waiting to see. Not necessarily okay. him going and making no, speeches, enough. which I think is wonderful. But just the impact he's going to have on, on recruiting and, and pushing new people out there to run for office. Um, well, there's another new person running for office. His name is Michael Bloomberg. He's 76 huh. years old. You might have heard of him. Another uh -huh. Boston Brahmin billionaire. <laughs> I mean, he is also apparently considering mm. a run. Is there a huge part of the Democratic base that's clamoring for more Bloomberg? So I have to say, for full disclosure, I did do some work for Mike Bloomberg So this is your fault? Yes, partly. <laughs> but I, I will tell you, when he spoke at the convention in 2016, I was a little nervous because I wasn't sure with all of this sort of stuff we were talking about in terms of system being rigged and all of that, that he was this one percenter that's going to go and speak at our national convention. Yeah. You know what? People loved him. One, because he was anti-Trump. Uh, but... People really, you know, you embrace him. I think he could run a credible campaign because there is an, the, the independence of uh, Mike Bloomberg, I think, is attractive for a lot of people. Well, we will see. It is, it is popcorn <laughs> for me over, uh, over on the, me too, the actually. side You're of the aisle. Alone. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Basil. Right. We'll be right back. Apparently, this week's Senate confirmation hearings for D.C. Circuit Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court could be summed up with just one word. Unprecedented. 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 Un
<laughs> Joining me now is someone who can tell us from her deep well of experience if that word was aptly or overly used this week. Legal affairs correspondent for National Public Radio, Nina Totenberg. Um, Nina, thanks so much for joining me. Let's get My right pleasure. to it. Was this hearing unprecedented? Well, I've never seen such a raucous hearing, at least from the audience. Um, there were about 200 protesters who got hauled out of there and made quite a show of it in the process. And I don't think even the Democrats by the end of it were really thrilled with it. But hmm. it was also unprecedented, I think, in the sense that the procedures that had been followed in the past were not followed entirely this time. I mean, I think Chairman Grassley tried his best to do what he could, but they didn't go through the the White House documents of the nominee in the usual way under the Presidential Records Act. And as a result, they got fewer than 10 percent of them, which made the Democrats very mad. And they kept pointing out that they uh, that all of the records of Elena Kagan had been produced and that President Obama had not invoked executive privilege in any way, shape or form, whereas uh, President Trump did invoke some unspecified constitutional privilege. And the Republicans kept saying, yes, but you have many, many tens of thousands more documents mm -hmm. that were produced this time. And we could go on and on over the details of this. Mm -hmm. But it, it, the, the truth is that the procedures followed were unprecedented. And the Democrats thought they mm -hmm. were unfair and the Republicans thought they were fair and and that they were trying to get their nominee confirmed before the election, which is the main point here. Well, and I was watching, I was watching as a viewer, I was watching as a voter, um, and I wondered what viewers and voters got out of it. I, I talked to Senator Mike Lee just yesterday. He's a member of the Senate Judiciary. He's a lawyer. He's the son of a U.S. Solicitor General, um, former Supreme Court clerk to Justice Alito. And he said these hearings might not be necessary, that we didn't always do them, and that maybe the public isn't getting much out of them. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I, I think that that's, you, that's probably not going to happen. You can't have somebody nominated now for the Supreme Court of the United States. This kind of exchange has been going on. Nominees have been appearing regularly since the 1950s. And it, you can't really break with that. I, I'm not sure that this one produced anything revelatory. Right. Since the, uh, but there will come a time when the president is of one party and the Senate is of another. Sure. And where there has to be some sort of an accommodation. Yeah. I think that's probably what President Obama was hoping for when he nominated Merrick Garland, who was the nominee, the, the Democratic nominee Republicans had been asking for for years. But it didn't work out that way. Uh, well, so just quickly we'll just, before we have to go, I, mm -hmm. I think we can both agree the likelihood of Kavanaugh being confirmed is high. Um, put <laughs> what his, yeah, put, put, put what his addition to the court would, would mean in context. Well, it's going to be a very conservative court, more conservative than most people in this country have seen in a half century. Mm. Mm. And, and that has consequences mm. beyond abortion and uh, even the Mueller investigation. 
it has consequences mm. way beyond that. And people will come to realize that over time and decide whether they like it or not. Until now, conservatives have mm. been the activists in the, on the political front in, on behalf of a more mm. conservative court. Democrats never didn't, it was never their priority. And we'll find out whether this makes a difference. Okay, Nina Totenberg, thank you so much. Stay. Thank you. Stay there, we'll be right back. The Syrian war is on the precipice of a very troubling escalation as we speak. Today, new airstrikes in Idlib, according to the White Helmets and the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, both are saying Russian forces were behind the strikes. This follows Turkey's call for a ceasefire that was promptly rejected by both Russia and Iran yesterday. The U.N. has warned the Assad offensive in Idlib could be a, quote, bloodbath involving tens of thousands of civilians, including children, in a war that has already seen the deaths of 500,000 people, 50 of them children. It seems impossibly the worst maybe yet to come. Joining me now are Congressman Brendan Boyle, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, and CNN national security analyst Sam Vinograd. Congressman, I know this is an issue uh, you care deeply about. You and I um, penned an op-ed about this very thing just last week, um, calling for safe zones in, in Idlib to protect, uh, to, to protect those civilians. Um, President Trump has warned Assad against the use of chemical weapons, but we know now from the new U.S. envoy for Syria that they are seeing lots of evidence that Syrian forces are preparing to use chemical weapons, in fact. What should Congress do? What should this president do? Well, first, Essie, thanks for uh, focusing on this important topic that for the last, really for the course of this decade, has not gotten nearly the attention that it deserves, either from the media or, frankly, from those of us in elective office. Um, in my view, the United States and most of the Western world has really had no policy towards Syria. Um, that's included two presidents of both parties. Most mm. recently, with President Trump, he's been all over the map. Um, within a, a week, he went from saying that we're going to pull out all troops to then mm -hmm. launching the strike on the uh, airstrip the last time chemical weapons were used. So right. in terms of what we're, we're focused on now with Idlib, we're talking about three million civilians who live in this area. Yeah. If this is the end game, then what Russia and um, the Assad forces and Iran could be planning would actually likely be the worst atrocity in a war that has been filled with them. Right. Um, Sam, you worked for President Obama when this war um, broke out. There are many lessons to learn from the decisions that were made then. Um, any of them you confident that this current administration has learned? I think we haven't. I think that we've continued to miscalculate the costs. And in national security, often you figure out the costs and the benefits. Under President Obama, we miscalculated what would happen if we did not more actively engage in Syria from a terrorism standpoint and in terms of what Russia was prepared to do to support right. Assad in a whole range of atrocities. It's not just chemical weapons. He's using right. barrel bombs as we speak. Mm -hmm. To murder children. There's the humanitarian um, consequence, a refugee crisis, which is a huge strain on resources there and here, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, uh, terrorism, national security implications. I mean, the consequences uh, abound, and yet this administration seems to be sort of 
doing the same thing. They're in a, a warn and watch right. posture at this point. So we warn about specifically chemical weapons. Again, all these other war crimes we kind of put over to the side. Right. So it's it's chemical weapons. So we will warn against chemical weapons use. We will not do anything to stop it. Right. But we're waiting for it to happen. We'll respond when it does and just watching Russian airplanes target civilians. We have American troops in Idlib. That's right. That the Russians have basically said, get out of the way. We're coming. Right. We don't want to get into direct engagement with you. Move over and let us just keep going. Um, Congressman, um, quickly, Assad seems to think there are no consequences for crossing red lines over and over again. Um, is he wrong? Uh, so far, it's pretty easy to see why he believes that. Um, you know, one thing I just want to point out and why Syria is so important this is essentially a mini world war, not in the mm -hmm. sense of World War I or World War II where there were many fields of battle. This is a, a, a mini world war in the sense that almost every major nation state is yeah. here uh, on the battlefield in Syria. A and I will say for those in either party who support a more protectionist uh, foreign policy or who believe that we're safer if the U.S. withdraws from the world, this is the kind of thing that happens the Syrian war. Um, I believe, uh, as, as many others actually on the Foreign Affairs Committee in, in the House, yeah. that we are stronger in the United States and stronger mm -hmm. in the world when we have an activist U.S. foreign policy and we don't retreat from the world. Well, and certainly, I, you know, we've got no excuse. We're watching a genocide happen in real time with pictures, with videos. Um, you know, with, with on-the-ground testimonials. There's, there's no excuse for our inaction other than to say we simply don't care. Uh, Congressman Boyle, I'm really glad that you do. Sam, uh, thanks for joining me and for your expertise. I appreciate it. That's it for us. Be sure to stick around for the Van Jones Show. He'll talk to the always outspoken comedian and The View co-host Joy Behar. That's coming up next right here on CNN.